Please pray with me. Father, we do come uh, before you this afternoon, and uh, Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your Word. And Father, that you'll use it to to grow our love for you. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, customer loyalty programs have become a a normal part of doing business for many companies. They are essentially reward programs that give customers reward from purchasing goods from a a certain company or for using their services. So airlines give special deals or or perks or airline miles to frequent flyers. Credit card companies have cash back programs. There are restaurants who might reward you for ordering food through their app. Well, companies offer rewards because they know that offering rewards to consumers helps build consumer loyalty. So when airlines offer frequent flyers to those, or or airline miles to those who fly frequently, it encourages those flyers to only get on flights with that airline. The reward that Talibat offers you when you order food through their app encourages you to order food through their app again the next time. And so these rewards help produce loyal customers that will keep coming back over and over and over again to these same companies. Now, well, I in, in no way want to equate frequent flyer miles or Talibat to Jesus, but I do think that those customer rewards programs might be helpful illustrations of, of what happens in the Christian life or what should happen in the Christian life. When God forgives us, when God forgives sinners, when he saves us, well, then our lives are to be lived with grateful hearts. You could say loyal hearts, but I think grateful hearts for what God has done for us. As so I just prayed this verse a few moments ago, but Romans 12:1, Paul writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, or maybe remembering the mercy that God has had for you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. In other words, the response to the mercy that God has given should be us offering our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, to seek to glorify Him in in all that we do. Well, this is is something of the attitude that we see at work in our verses for, for today. You can go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to to turn there. Uh, And in these verses, we see a a woman who ends up showing great love and affection to Jesus. And the reason that we, we find out, the reason we find out that she expresses such love for Jesus is because of the great forgiveness she has received. And God's forgiveness made this woman a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. And the Lord uses her example, it is her example, that Jesus then uses to share the gospel with a Pharisee by the name of Simon. So I have four points for you to consider from today's text, four points. Uh, The first is a, a scandalous scene. The second, a preparing word, a preparing word. Third, a piercing word, and then finally, a pardoning word. A scandalous scene, a preparing word, a piercing word, and a pardoning word. And I think the the main idea from this text is is very simple. It's that great forgiveness 
produces great love. Great forgiveness produces great love. Uh, So first, uh, a scandalous scene. Uh, If you do have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 7, look with me at verse 36. Uh, Starting in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. What you need to know about the the scene that Luke has just described here is that it would have been a fairly scandalous or or shocking scene in Jesus' day. In fact, I might imagine it would be something of a fairly scandalous scene in, in our day as well. Now, now what happens first is, is not so shocking. There's simply a, a Pharisee named Simon who invites Jesus into his house for dinner. And so as I was preparing the sermon and I was reading and trying to get some background, I learned that it was fairly common for visiting rabbis or teachers. So Jesus seems to be considered a visiting teacher here. It was fairly common for them to be invited over for a, a special banquet or, or maybe a meal on the Sabbath often to discuss matters of of theology or current societal issues. It was also normal for those homes to be open for anyone else to come and listen in on the discussions. So people from the community could come and listen in on the discussions that a rabbi might have with a visiting teacher. And so these people would not be invited to eat, but they could come listen to the discussions that was taking place around the table. This seems to be what is happening in this scenario, and it helps explain the presence of the woman who was in the house as well. She was, she was likely one of the number of people who would come to listen and to be there because Jesus was there. It's what happens next that is fairly scandalous. And this woman begins to wash Jesus' feet as he is reclining at the table. And the fact that, that this woman is described as a, as a sinner, Luke describes her as a sinner in these verses, means that she was a, a known sinner in the community. In, in all likelihood, this is probably Luke's way of telling you that she was a prostitute. Now, she, she's weeping as she washes Jesus' feet. We're not quite sure why. Uh, maybe it's gratefulness and joy for the forgiveness that she has received. We'll see that a little bit later in the text. But whatever the reason, her, her tears are enough, her tears are so many that they're enough to wet Jesus' feet. So she uses them to actually clean Jesus' feet, and then she washes or, or, or wipes his feet clean with her hair. Now that itself would have been a fairly scandalous act. It was very shameful for Jewish women to, to take down their hair in public. It was proper for them to wear it up. Uh, But she does even more than this. She then anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume, and she begins kissing them. The whole picture is one of of great love and great great affection for Jesus. But one pastor uh, wrote this. He said this could be a difficult situation for Jesus at the same time. 
it would be very easy to say, how in the world does this prostitute feel so familiar with Jesus? She must know him. How did he have any relationship with such a shameless woman? So in other words, perhaps this could have been a difficult situation for Jesus because this might have been what is in the mind of those who are there. Well, unsurprisingly, Simon the Pharisee, the host of this dinner, he notices what's going on. I think it would have been pretty hard to ignore what was going on. And he said to himself, he says, he, think, he thinks this, well, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Well, basically what, what Simon is thinking here, he is thinking or he is assuming that a true prophet of God would, one, know what kind of woman this is, know that she is a sinner. A true prophet of God would, would know this woman is a prostitute. And second, no true prophet of God would allow a, a sinful woman to behave in this way with him. And so Simon is making the assumption that Jesus is no true prophet of God because he either does not know who this woman is on one hand, or if he does know who this woman is, he couldn't be a true prophet because there is no way that he would allow this woman to clean his feet in this manner. Well, on, on one hand, I want to be sympathetic to Simon. Uh, I think I would probably struggle, if I was the host of this dinner, to not be a little uncomfortable at the scene that was unfolding before me. I'm guessing if this was taking place in your house, I don't know all of your cultures super well, but my guess is that most of you would be a little uncomfortable if someone was coming behaving in this way as well. But despite my sympathy, and perhaps despite your sympathy, the rest of the verses that we're going to read clearly show that Simon had the wrong attitude towards Jesus and the wrong attitude towards this woman. Uh, even his thoughts betray him. Uh, he does not search for an explanation. He does not seek to give Jesus the, the benefit of the doubt here. He simply uses this as an easy excuse to dismiss Jesus and to reject Jesus. He, he simply uses it as an easy excuse to ignore Jesus. And remember the context of, of where we are in the book of Luke. Jesus had just finished, which was what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Jesus had just finished criticizing those who had rejected his ministry as well as the ministry of John the Baptist. If you look back at verse 34 of Luke chapter 7, oh, Jesus says this, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now back in Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees complained that Jesus and his disciples ate with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus replied, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, all of this context comes together in these verses. In his response to, to Jesus and what he thinks, well, Simon shows himself to be one of those who have rejected Jesus. He's the living example of the people that, that Jesus was rebuking. Simon echoes the criticism about Jesus' association with sinners and tax collectors and uses it to dismiss Jesus. He is self-righteous. 
But Jesus is not done with Simon. Jesus does. Jesus is not done with Simon. He uses this this scandalous scene to speak words of truth to Simon. He uses this scandalous scene to confront Simon's sin and call him to repentance. And that takes us to the, the second point of the sermon, which is a preparing word. A preparing word. Now look with me starting in verse 40. And Jesus replied to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. I hope you notice the irony in this first part of Jesus' response to Simon. As Simon makes the assumption that Jesus could not be a true prophet because he thought he did not know that this woman who was there was a prostitute. But in his response, Jesus shows that he knew exactly what Simon was thinking. As Simon did not voice his objections to Jesus out loud. He thinks them, and yet Jesus responds to them directly. As Simon thought Jesus could not be a prophet, but even in his response, Jesus shows himself to be, in fact, far greater than a prophet. And Jesus begins his response to Simon by telling a parable about two debtors, uh, one who, who owes 500 denarii and the other debtor who owes 50 denarii. Now, 500 denarii would have represented about one and a half years of wages. So it's a large sum of money. A 50 denarii, about two months of wages. So actually both of these individuals owe quite a lot of money, uh, but obviously the one who owes one and a half years wages owes a far greater sum of money, a, a much larger debt. Well, in the, in the parable, the one to whom these debts are owed, the one who had lent the money, forgives both debts. He, he cancels them because he knows neither of these individuals have the ability to pay him back. Well, after telling the parable, Jesus turns to Simon and asks, all right, well, which of these two men will love the one who forgave the debt more? Who will be more grateful? And who will be more appreciative for, for having their debt forgiven? Well, Simon rightly answers the same way I suspect that you would answer, the same way that one of my sons answered when I asked that question this morning around our breakfast table. It is the one who has been forgiven the larger debt who will love more. Well, before we go on, we're going to kind of unpack that answer a little bit. But before we go on, I just want you to see how Jesus uses this parable to prepare Simon, to prepare Simon the Pharisee for the word of rebuke that is going to follow. Now, Jesus is about to say something very difficult to Simon. He is about to rebuke him, and he is about to correct him. He is about to confront Simon in his sin and for his attitude towards both Jesus and this woman. But before doing that, Jesus uses this parable to help Simon receive the word of correction that will follow. Now, ultimately, we don't know if Simon receives this word of correction, but Jesus uses this parable to prepare his heart. And brothers and sisters, this should be a great example to you. 
And Jesus comes to Simon and he begins in a, in a non-confrontational way. He tells a parable that Simon will agree with in order to help soften his heart and prepare him for the word of correction that will follow. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba and his great sin with Bathsheba, well, you know that this is the same approach that Nathan the prophet took with David when he comes and confronts David for his sin of adultery and his sin of murder. And he told a parable, and the Lord used that parable to open the eyes of King David to his sin. And brothers and sisters, the, the bottom line is how you communicate with others matters. There are times when correction and, and rebuke are needed. We are sinful people. We need correction and we need rebuke. Now, sometimes correction and rebuke needs to be delivered in a more confrontational way than Jesus does here. In fact, Jesus himself is more confrontational at other times in the gospel and at other times in his ministry. But I think more often than not, you should take your cue from Jesus in these verses. You should take your cue from, from Nathan's confrontation with David. If your, goal, if your goal is to help others see their sin, if your goal is to help them repent, your goal is to help them change and, and walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord instead of simply proving yourself right, well, then I think you should most off, more often than not approach others gently. Gently guide them to see their own sin. And that brings us to the, the third point of the sermon, which is a piercing word, which in other words is the word of correction or rebuke that follows Jesus' parable. So look with me, starting at verse 44. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Well, in the, the remainder of his response here, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that in his parable, the debt that these people owed, the 500 denarii and the 50 denarii, represent sin. They are representative of the debt of sin that you and I owe. The debtors, therefore, represent sinful people, and, and the one who forgave in that parable is representative of Jesus himself. And so Jesus' point to Simon, and his point, his point is that this woman, this sinful woman, is, is acting in this what is a seemingly scandalous way towards Jesus. She is acting this way because she has been forgiven much. She has a great debt of sin that has been forgiven. And because she has been forgiven an enormous debt of sin, she shows great love and gratitude towards Jesus. But what Jesus really wants Simon to see here is that her actions, her actions were a demonstration of her love towards Jesus. And she treated Jesus in a far better manner than Simon, who was the host of this dinner. And as the host of the dinner, this should have been a very shameful thing to, to Simon. It should have been convicting. 
Because it makes the point abundantly clear that it is this woman, not Simon, who has treated Jesus rightly. She is the one who loves. I'm guessing that each and every one of you have at one point in your life been in a conversation or, or been in a meeting where the other person just either barely talks to you or they just seem distracted the whole time. And maybe that's how some of you feel when I'm running around helping get set up for our service, that I'm paying you just half of my attention as we're having a conversation. And maybe you've been invited over to to someone's house, and it just really seems like maybe they don't really want you there, or you're at a party that someone's hosting, and it's like you kind of found out about the party, but they didn't really want to invite you. They just don't really show you any honor. They don't give you any attention. Uh, That's basically what is happening with Simon here. In in verse 44, Jesus says that Simon gave him no water for his feet, but that the, the woman who was there washed his feet with her tears in her hair. One one writer explained it this way. It would have been a kind gesture for Simon as the host to have had his servants wash the feet of his guests. Feet would get dusty in that time as they walked through the sand, much like if you went tramping through the desert here, your feet would be a dusty mess. So it would have been a kind gesture for Simon as the host to have his servants wash the feet of his guests. Simon was not necessarily being rude and neglecting to do this, But he certainly did not go out of his way to show hospitality to Jesus. It's the the same thing with the kiss. Though it would have been a warm and hospitable greeting for for Simon to greet Jesus with a kiss when he arrived at the house, uh, he did not do this. But the woman went out of her way to kiss Jesus' feet. It would also have been a kind gesture for, for one during that day to anoint the head of their guest with olive oil. Again, not required, but kind. Again, Simon did not do this, but the woman did more. She anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. The bottom line is that at each and every opportunity, Simon did not express any great affection or warmth towards Jesus, while this woman displayed an abundance of affection towards Jesus, an abundance of, of gratitude and warmth towards Jesus. When Jesus tells Simon the reason for the difference between him and the woman, he says it right in verse 47. Her many sins have been forgiven. That is why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little will love little. Now Jesus does not forgive much and little. Jesus only forgives all. And what Jesus is, is saying here is that Simon has, has not been forgiven. Simon has not seen his need for forgiveness, so he has no great affection towards Jesus. The great love that this woman had for Jesus was evidence that her sins had indeed been forgiven. Perhaps she had been present during John the Baptist's ministry and been baptized with John's baptism. Perhaps she had encountered Jesus at an earlier point in his ministry or earlier in his stay in this same town. We do not know, but she came to the house having been forgiven, and her gratitude for what God had done for her overflowed into her love for Jesus. So when Jesus says that her sins have been forgiven, that that verb that is used there, the Greek verb that is used there, really can mean that her sins were forgiven and are in a continual state of forgiveness. It's It's a past tense. So she comes to this house with her sins having been forgiven. 
Simon, on the other hand, shows little love for Jesus. It seems he, like many of the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day who encountered Jesus, they saw themselves as righteous. They did not see a personal need for forgiveness. And so they do not respond to Jesus with any love or warmth. And they instead respond with, with animosity, with hatred, with opposition. And so Jesus' words here are, one, words of affirmation to, to this woman that her sins have been forgiven. Her sins have indeed been forgiven. And at the same time, they're, they're words of rebuke to Simon for his lack of love and his rejection of Jesus. Well, what can we, what can you take away from this? I mean, I think the obvious question in, in light of what Jesus has just said here is, do you have the same love for God as this woman? Have you ever had this love for God? If the, the answer to that question is no, perhaps you should ask yourself if you've ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you should ask yourself, does, does your life reflect a love and a gratefulness for what the Lord has done for you? And maybe it'd be helpful even just explore some ways, like what would this even look like? And I think certainly it's related to your emotions, right? We are going to feel a love and a gratitude for what Christ has done. We're going to feel a thankfulness. But I think it is more than that. And perhaps primarily something other than just what you feel on a day-to-day basis. Like a tree and its fruit. You remember those verses from Jesus' Sermon on the Plain just a few weeks ago. Like a tree and its fruit. It is a love that overflows into your actions. So one, I think we can see in these verses that to love Jesus is to desire to be identified with Jesus. Now, this woman was not shy about her love towards Jesus and her gratitude towards him. She did not mind that others would see her love for Jesus. Now look, I, I know it's not always comfortable to be publicly identified with Jesus or publicly identified as a Christian. I know some of you, depending on your family situations and perhaps even your religious backgrounds, there may be good reasons or situations to keep your faith hidden. But in general, more often than not, almost always, if you love Jesus, you should not mind that others know you are a Christian. In fact, you should desire it. Now, what else might a love for Jesus look like? In John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. A heart that loves Jesus abounds in good works. It abounds in obedience. Jesus' commands are not a burden to those who love him. It is not a, a drudgery or a hardship to follow Jesus. It can be hard, but it is not a hardship. It is a joy. It is a delight to follow Jesus. John 13.35 By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, if, if you are a Christian, your love for other Christians, your love for other brothers and sisters in Christ is a demonstration of your love for Jesus himself. So just simply ask yourself, do you love the church? And I mean by, when I say, do you love the church, what I mean is, do you love other brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love God's people? Because it is that which is the church. 
is the attitude of selfless service towards Jesus that characterized this woman, the attitude that you display to the body of Christ. I might also ask, do you delight in corporate worship? Now look, all of life is to be worshipped. It is not just your time at church. Your life, your entire life is to be offered as a living sacrifice to God, whether you are at work, or whether you are out with friends, or whether you are at church. The time that you come here on Fridays is not the only time that worship happens. All of life is worship. But I think your attitude towards corporate worship when we do gather together as God's people can be revealing. Do you delight in gathering with God's people? Do you delight in singing the praises of the one who has forgiven you? Look, just to put it bluntly, when you come, you should want to sing. You should want to sing loud. You should want to rejoice because your sins have been forgiven. If you're a Christian, your debt of sin has been forgiven. You should want to come and sing loud about that reality. You should want to come and sing your heart out in praise to your Savior. And finally, though we could probably go on for the rest of today, a love for Jesus should show up in a desire to spend time with him, to pray and to study God's word. But brothers and sisters, even as I, I share these many things that you could do to show love for Jesus, or many of the ways that our love for Jesus might be displayed, I do want to make it clear that, that none of us do these things perfectly. None of us have the same overflow of affection at all times. We have highs and we have lows. We struggle against the world, our flesh and the devil. Our affections, they go, they go up and they go down. And so my goal in, in listing these ways that, that you should be showing a love for Jesus is not to make you feel guilty or leaving you feeling guilty. Instead, I want to encourage you to seek to grow in your love and gratitude for Jesus. If you are not feeling a particular affection for God or, or the things of God, well, how can you grow in your love? There's a number of things I could tell you. I pray, read your Bible, the list goes on. We could just go back through that list of things that I just gave. But from this text, I want you to see that the two, two of the main ways that you can grow in your love for God is to, one, see your own sin for what it is. See your own sin for what it is. And second, remember the gospel, which is another way of saying remembering God's forgiveness. And these things are related. Now, what inspired the great love of this woman? Well, it was that her sins had been forgiven. And I think that the main thing that shapes your understanding of how much you have been forgiven is your view of God. I don't want to say that, that all sins are equal, though all sins equally separate us from God. Uh, there's some people that live, clearly live lives of greater sin and lesser sin. Nevertheless, I think the main thing that shapes your understanding of how much you have been forgiven is your view of God. Your view of God shapes your attitude towards your sin. Your perception of the, the size of your sin and the forgiveness you have received is the result of how you see your own sin in light of a holy God, not in light of how you see your sin in comparison to your neighbor. It is how you see your sin in light of a holy God. So brothers and sisters, if you make a habit of excusing or overlooking your sin, 
If you're fond of saying that it was not a a big deal or everyone does it, as opposed to grieving over your sin and and coming to the Lord in repentance, I'm convinced that, that your love for Jesus will be less. On the other hand, if if you truly seek to wrestle with the depths of your sin, you're going to cry out like the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me. Or like the Apostle Paul, I am the foremost or chief of sinners. the, The common denominator between Paul and Isaiah was that they saw their sin and rebellion in light of their holy creator. And brothers and sisters, in comparison to the holiness of God, your sin is horrific. It is is shameful. It is unworthy of God's grace. Israel's sin was often described as idolatry. It didn't look much different. It didn't look any different in God's eyes than the the actual sins of this woman. Brothers and sisters, the more you believe and see the reality of your own sin in light of a holy God, the more your love for God and the gratitude for his forgiveness of that sin will grow. And that brings us to the the second way that you can grow to love God more. And that is to remember the gospel. I think I've probably said something like that. Remember the gospel or preach the gospel to yourself a few times as I've preached to you. So I want to explain what it exactly is I mean when I say that. And what I mean is you should literally take time to recite the message of the gospel in your mind. The gospel is not just a message that those who do not know the Lord need to hear. It is the fuel of the Christian's obedience and sanctification. The message of the gospel is the fuel for Christian obedience. When you do not feel love towards Jesus, when you do not feel like worshiping, when you feel like complaining, when you doubt and when you despair, when you do not feel like forgiving someone else, what is it that you should do? You should remember the gospel. You should take time and actually think on the gospel, reflect on the gospel, pray the truths of the gospel back to the Lord. You should think about the forgiveness that Jesus has given you. It is when you remind yourself of the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that your love for Jesus will grow and that your motivation to obey Jesus will increase. Well, this this parable that Jesus told that we looked at just a few minutes ago of the creditor and the two debtors, it helps us to understand what Jesus did on the cross. And when someone forgives a debt, what is it that they do? If you loan money to a friend and, and later tell that friend, don't worry about it, you don't need to pay me back, what is it that you do? Well, you absorb the debt of that individual. You absorb your friend's debt. The debt does not just vanish. You take it on yourself. You essentially pay the debt on your friend's behalf. You lose money. You take on the hurt. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He absorbed the debt of sin for all who would repent and believe the good news of the gospel. He took the wrath of God in your place. He took the penalty for your rebellion against God. Christian you are a Christian, Jesus took your debt of sin on himself. And so just stop and ask yourself for a moment as you remember the gospel, as you seek to awaken your affections for God, what was required to pay for your sin? Friends, it was the death of another. 
It was the death of Jesus. If that does not tell you that you have been forgiven much, I do not know what will. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Now that was your debt, a debt far greater than 500 denarii, but Jesus paid it all. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you have been forgiven much. My friends, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, if you have never known a love for God like this woman showed, you should remember that verse that I just quoted, that the wages of sin is death. You have rebelled against your Creator. Your sin has separated you from your Creator God. And you are deserving of judgment. But the good news of the Gospel is that the Gospel is freely offered to you as well. And Jesus offered to take your debt of sin if you will repent of your sin and you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I urge you to do not be like Simon the Pharisee. Do not believe the lie that your need of forgiveness is small. Do not compare yourself to your neighbor. Compare yourself to a holy God. And know that forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. That takes us to the the last point of the sermon. A pardoning word. And look with me at, at verse 48. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So after Jesus delivers this word of rebuke to Simon, he turns to the woman and offers her a word of assurance. Your sins are forgiven. Perhaps a more precise translation of of what is written there in the original language is your sins have been and still are forgiven. Jesus is giving this woman a word of assurance that her sins have indeed been forgiven. He assures her that she has been pardoned. Friends, I do not know all of your life stories here, and I certainly do not know all of your sins. But I do know that many people believe that Jesus could not possibly forgive them because of the sins that they have committed in their past. My friends, if if that is you, I just want to simply tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is a lie of Satan. There is no sin so great that Jesus cannot and will not forgive. No one, including you, is beyond the hope of forgiveness. This woman was likely a prostitute. A prostitute that it seems like everyone in the community knew was a prostitute. But Jesus forgave her sin. And friends, Jesus freely offers to forgive all who repent and believe. He offers to forgive all who would repent and believe. And to those of you who are Christians, it is not uncommon for Christians to still struggle with with guilt and shame over past sin. And perhaps you're struggling with, with guilt and, and shame over present sin. And you would say that you know Jesus has forgiven you, but you really just have trouble believing that reality. And so what do you do? You treat, keep trying to earn God's favor by what you do. Uh, your perception of God's love for you is based on how well you obeyed that day. Instead of Jesus' finished work on the cross being the basis of your assurance of salvation, it is your own works. Brothers and sisters, if if that is you, I want you to hear Jesus' words of assurance in these verses. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus has taken your debt, 
Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has taken your guilt, and he has taken your shame. Brothers and sisters, the only duty that you owe in response to the forgiveness that you have received is love. You do not have to continually earn Jesus' forgiveness. You are forgiven. In response to this authoritative word of assurance and forgiveness to this woman, those who were there asked, who is this man who even forgives sins? And this is the question that has really been central to the Gospel of Luke. Who is Jesus? Who is this man who casts out demons? Who is this man who heals and causes the lame to walk? Who is this man who raises the dead back to life? This was the question at the heart of our text from a couple weeks ago when John the Baptist asked, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? Who is Jesus? Who is this man who even forgives sins? The answer is clear, and it's been clear throughout Luke's Gospel. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one who forgives sins. So as the the gathered crowd is, is asking this question, who is this man among themselves? Jesus tells the woman, your faith is saved. You go in peace. Friends, when... When God saves you, he sends his spirit to open your ears to the message of the gospel that is proclaimed. And by his spirit, he gives you new birth. He transforms your heart. And by his spirit, he gives you the gift of faith and repentance that you might respond to the message of the gospel. Faith is a gift of God. God gave this woman the gift of faith. It was her faith that saved her, not her great love. It was a gift of God. Like those reward programs that create loyalty by what they give. It was the forgiveness this woman received through faith that produced her love. Her love was evidence of her new birth. It was evidence of a a heart that had been transformed by the Spirit of God. And God forgives guilty sinners who respond in faith. And His Spirit generates love for Him in their hearts. Friends, as I close, I I think this, this text... Or these verses leave you with, with two questions. They are questions that you must answer. Uh, you must answer for yourself. And there are no more important questions than these two questions. The first question is simply, who is Jesus? It is that, that question that has been at the center of Luke. What is your answer to that question? And I've told you what I think. I've told you what the Bible teaches and what Jesus claimed. That he is God. He is the only one who could pay your debt of sin. Uh, But it's not my words that save you. You must answer that question for yourself. Let's respond to Jesus in faith. And that's really the second question. Once you believe that Jesus is God, if you answer that question, who is Jesus rightly, you must ask the second question. Will I place my faith in him? Will I believe him? Will I trust him? Will I follow him? And friends, you will not trust and follow him until you see your sin as great and your need of forgiveness as great. The only way of salvation is to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. If you do that, you have Jesus' words of assurance that your sins are forgiven. Let's pray.